Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. Today we are talking about something that we have both grappled with, the literary canon. The typical texts that are considered the best examples of great literature. Most of these classics are written for and by white people. Yes. Jenna wrote a blog about this on our website called Teaching English While White, and we have had many discussions about this with each other and with teachers all over the country. So for this episode, we wanted to take a deep dive into the notion of, quote, teaching the canon, end quote. When thinking about canonical texts, we wondered, who decides what gets called a classic? Who gets to decide what texts all students should read? And what are the criteria for a great book? Across the country, the books that are taught most frequently in secondary schools, that's grades 7 through 12, are written by white authors. Topping the list are To Kill a Mockingbird, The Great Gatsby, The Catcher in the Rye, The Crucible, Lord of the Flies, Animal Farm, and Romeo and Juliet. These texts all center around white characters, but they are usually not taught with any mention of race or racial identity. We also have a suspicion that many of these so-called canonical books are being taught because they've always been taught. And most teachers don't have the time or energy to challenge the status quo, especially when it comes to beloved books. Check out our first podcast episode, To Teach or To Kill a Mockingbird, for more on this topic. So we talked with two teachers who are doing just that, thinking really deeply about what they teach and why. And they're helping to complicate our long-held beliefs about the white canon and what we can do to make sure all of our students can see themselves in the texts we teach. First up is Trisha Abarvia, public high school teacher in the greater Philadelphia area. She identifies as a second-generation Filipina-American. Jenna started by asking Trisha about how to disrupt the pattern of holding up white literature as the only books worthy of study. I think it starts with teachers first acknowledging that they are white and that whiteness means something, that it's not the normal or the default, but that that whiteness means that they're perpetuating a white canon, not just a canon of texts that are cultural touchstones in Western civilization. They're white books. I mean, that really is what it is. The, the, the canon, um, in so many ways, its roots are in colonization, you know, and when you think about colonization in British schools going into, you know, different countries and um, 
I teach things fall apart in one of my classes and I talk to the kids about how if you want to take over a country or take over people, you have to take over their mind. And one way to do that is through schools. So when the missionaries came in and they brought their religion and when they brought their government, one of the things they also brought was schools. And that's one of the tools of oppression. And I think that teachers, you know, we're human beings. We have a lot of biases. I don't think many teachers, myself included, so I've come a long way in my own career. Um, I don't think that we see what we're doing as perpetuating some sort of system of oppression. I think if most teachers could see the canon as that, they would start to think differently because I think most teachers want to do what's best for their kids. And I think they have good intentions and they believe that these are the texts that will help their kids become cultured and educated. But at the same time, we have to reflect, well, who made up that canon? What, you know, was largely white male scholars who have kind of excluded women and people of color through centuries. And I think colonization happens through the mind. And so you think that this is what is valuable and you pass it on to the kids thinking that's what's valuable for them. But you're also contributing to a system that continues to exclude other voices. So I think the first step is just for teachers to recognize what their role has been on that. And that seems like a small thing, but it's a huge thing because it means you have to shift so much about how you see yourself and how you identify yourself as a teacher. And you have to understand that you have a responsibility, that you're not just just you're not just in class talking about content, that you're really delivering or perpetuating a worldview in your class. And that's a tremendous responsibility that I don't, some te- I don't think some teachers have grappled with or th- have really thought about. Yeah. So how do we get more teachers to think about that, do you think? Like, I, I mean, this I is agree, just yeah. the question, and that's what Teaching While well, White, that's what we're trying to do. So how do we get that conversation well, happening? I think you listen to people who, um, I think when you do, or when you are in situations when you have teachers of color or white educators who are bringing up these issues, instead of being defensive, the first thing to do is to listen. Because I think oftentimes when you're feeling defensive, that's when you know you need to lean into it. That's when you know you have to do some reflection upon whatever it is you're feeling defensive about. Um, I think that's the first thing. And then I think, I think teachers need to do a lot of reading on their own. You know, I think that there's there's so many resources out there. We always tell the kids, I think sometimes complain that, oh, just Google it because Google has everything. I think the same thing can be said for teachers. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to go and read up and just even if you did a Google search to read Robin DeAngelo's Right Fragility or to read Ali Michael's work on um, raising race questions. That's just as available in your public library as any other text. So I think it's going to be being able to do that, maybe starting a book study at your school. Um, One of the things that we're doing this, um, we started a social justice anti-bias book club at our school, just among the faculty. And so uh, we kind of came together at the end of the school year and we kind of browsed some titles. So we're gonna start with Just Mercy Mm -hmm. and just kind of informing and educating ourselves and realizing that racism and oppression affects everyone, not just the students of color. And so like really trying to dig into that. So that's one sort of concrete step we've taken. Um, Listening, like I said, to when others come in and try to like put the defensive reaction to the side for a bit, I think would be useful. And I think really um, not being afraid to look at current events in your classroom, because I think the only way to avoid race is to do it intentionally at this point, because what's happening, I mean, you really, I mean, 
the world is our curriculum. That's what we're that's what we're preparing the kids for. And so if we're not talking about the things that are happening out there, if we're not connecting the literature we teach to things that are happening out in the world, then we have to question, well, like, what is the value? And I think kids are questioning that too. Right? I'll never forget this one student who said she was in middle school and um, they were reading, I think, To Kill a Mockingbird. And she said that Ferguson was going on at that time. And she remembers watching the news and reading To Kill a Mockingbird and thinking, like, there's a connection here. But then when she went to school, the te there was silence around it. There was no discussion of it. It would have been such an opportunity to be able to talk about it. And she really remembers clearly feeling that disconnect. And I think teachers are afraid to go there, right, to make those. It's not about being political, because truthfully, all teaching is political. But it's about giving the kids an opportunity to talk. Because if they don't learn to discuss these issues in a safe environment, guided by a teacher, then we will have adults who can't talk to each other either. And that's, again, it's that same cycle of perpetuating the system. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in your own classroom in terms of delivering what's at the curriculum and how you're maybe bringing race more explicitly to the text you're teaching or what are you doing with with the white canon that you're expected yeah. to teach so um it's for years i've taught world literature <laughs> and that's our ninth grade course so that was kind of that was always nice to be able to have like a worldview. so i am actually going back to american literature this year and we have um we have, a we have a strong group of teachers and we have common exams and common midterms. So you, every teacher has to work within the system that they're in. And I just looked at it and thought, okay, what is essential? Can we kind of agree among our team? Like what are the texts that are essential and what are not? And so I think one of the things that I'm going to do, or one of the things that we're doing that we've already changed is the summer reading. Um, we're going to be doing um, Fallen Angels by Walter Dean Myers. So the kids are coming in with that. And one of the things that we're planning to do is use that as a kind of a window into many different issues. So so Fallen Angels, I don't know if you're familiar, it's like the Vietnam, it's a Vietnam War book, um, but it touches on so many issues of class and race and even gender and how we fear the enemy because there's a lot in there about language and power and the kinds of psychological things the soldiers had to do in terms of how to frame their enemy in order to just survive. Um, so that dehumanization and fear of the other. Um, so what we're going to do is take a look at all of these little issues and then link them to current events. And then hopefully that will be a window into these same issues as we continue throughout the year. So it'll be kind of this text that will say like, okay, this is our kind of launching point, and then we'll go from there. Um, another example would be, um, I'm not teaching to cat. I'm not teaching um, Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> the, um, I'm still teaching The Great Gatsby. Um, apply a critical lens to The Great Gatsby and apply a critical lens to The Crucible, but Catcher in the Rye, which I never, I never liked as a student. And I had a hard time teaching when I taught American Lit more than 10 years ago. And I've always like, well, I don't know. And some kids liked it, some kids didn't. And I finally was like, you know, I'm not going to teach that book. And we've replaced it with, um, a, we're thinking about replacing it with, I shouldn't say not yet, <laughs> but we're thinking about replacing it with literature circles of um, Native American indigenous writers and having kids give kids an opportunity to look at themes within the Native American indigenous experience through several different selections and then also bringing in some small common text. So I guess my approach as a teacher has really shifted since I first started. When I first started, I was very much a traditional 
reading check quizzes, multiple choice questions, um, study guides. It's very teacher directed. And I really did feel it was my responsibility. I saw my role as a teacher as being the expert. And so I had to deliver this expert knowledge to students who were these empty vessels who were waiting to receive it. Um, but it was just not true. I mean, it was just false. That's just false. They have so much they can bring to a text. And I knew that in my, like, graduate education. I knew about Louise Rosenblatt and everything and Dewey, but I forgot about it once I was in a system, mm -hmm. right? And so part of my journey has been remembering all of that and kind of sort of decolonizing myself as a teacher. Um, so my approach has really been now about multiple points of view and always looking at a text instead of thinking about a text in terms of this is what it means to have an American dream in The Great Gatsby. Um, well, what do we mean by American dream? American dream from whom? And um, whose voices are being centered? Whose voices are at the margins? Why might that be? What else is going on here? Really getting kids to ask questions about a text and not necessarily love it, but to, they can end up loving it, that would be wonderful, but to end up really deeply engaging with it. You have been part of a Twitter feed called Disrupt Text. Did you start that chat? How did that come to be? And what, what's it about? What's going on there? So Disrupt Text is, um, the hashtag Disrupt Text is a slow chat on Twitter. And um, it was kind of started by multiple people coming together at one time. So Kim, Dr. Kim Parker and I did a um, online workshop for the Educator Collaborative. And our, t our topic in April was about disrupting the secondary classroom and how we can replace texts or problematize the texts that we have, applying a critical lens. And at the same time, some of our other colleagues that we know, including another Heinemann fellow, Julia Torres, and Lorena German, who's a teacher, um, in Austin, Texas, they too were having these same conversations. And then they reached out to me when I proposed this idea of having the slow chat on Twitter about, you know, let's just once a week, let's select a title that's in the quote unquote canon. And then let's think together because I've seen such tremendous value in crowdsourcing teacher knowledge through a tool like Twitter. Let's crowdsource and think about this text in different ways. And, um, and so that's what we did. And we just, we, I put that out there into the world. People responded. The four of us decided that we would organize it. And so each week, one of us led a discussion on each of the, on these first four books. We asked for, um, we asked for suggestions from the Twitterverse, which books would you like to disrupt? And so we had more than, I think, almost 90 replies. And it was very clear, Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, The Crucible, and Lord of the Flies were the first four texts. Um, Romeo and Juliet was number five. So we have a whole list of them. And so we're just going to walk through and over the course of the week, teachers drop in and they answer the same series of questions. The first question is always about what are the benefits of teaching this text? Always start from like, why are we teaching it? There are benefits to this. What are they? The second question is always about what could be potentially problematic about it in terms of race, class, gender, and so on. The third question is always, um, What's a forward-facing way that we could look at this text? In other words, how we, could we bring in 
current events and contemporary issues into this. So we might look at Gatsby as like a, a passing narrative or even something about identity theft was one of the questions. Um, and then the last three questions in the chat are about suggestions. So suggestions for fiction, nonfiction, and poetry that would pair well as pair text or counter narratives to the canonical text. Mm. I think we've touched upon a need that teachers have. So when you were asking earlier, how can teachers do something? What can a teacher do to bring these diverse voices into the classroom when, and when we keep perpetuating the canon um, when you don't know any better? I think some teachers need permission so when they see other teachers doing it, they need models for how it can be done. And I think the Disrupt Text Chat does that, provides models, like here's how I'm doing it. Maybe you can apply it to your classroom in whatever way you can, or you can tweak it for your kids. Are you getting any pushback from administrators or parents or, or even students or other teachers in the department? What has the response been when you are applying these sort of ideas into actual teaching? Um, I teach in a place where we do have some freedom and a lot of, um, I know other teachers who talk about administrators who demand lesson plans and everyone must teach the same thing on every single day. I'm not in one of those places and it has been a gift. I would not be the teacher I am today had I not been given the creative freedom to do the things that I've been able to do, period. Online, there's been um, there's been a couple push people, there've been a few teachers who have pushed back a little bit. Um, I. One um, one teacher actually, when I made a comment about you know opening up our classrooms and really doing a hard audit of your curriculum and looking to see are your works written by all the same type of people? How many people of color are there? And I kind of did this little Twitter thread on like the value for me as a person of color to be able to see my own experiences reflected like that. The value of that was remarkable for me as a student and continues to be for me as a person and human being. He made some comment about how he never looks at the the color of the person's skin, and if I do, then that's on me. <laughs> it was, so I think there's a lot of defensiveness under the sense of like, well, I don't, I'm colorblind. I don't, it doesn't matter to me like what the author's skin color is. Like the fact that you do that, that, that somehow they turn that around and they make that racism. Like that's not, it's an acknowledgement that a person's experiences and background affect what they write and that that's important because that means we're acknowledging a person's full humanity. When you are colorblind, you are not acknowledging a person's full humanity. When you say you're just gonna treat everyone the same, no matter what they look like, um, sure, that sounds great and like that sounds great and it's a nice message to be kind to people, but to be colorblind says that you don't value my cultural experiences that I'm bringing, that you're going to ign purposefully ignore that part and instead only focus on the part that makes me like everyone else. In other words, and since most people are in communities where whiteness is, is normal, then you're only going to focus on the part of me that is like has assimilated as white versus the parts of me that are diverse and are different and that those two need to be recognized. So I think that there's been a lot, there's been some pushback, that defensiveness, because I don't think, I think that many of us grew up under this colorblind system. And I think teachers grew up under that colorblind system. And it's very hard to break free of that because we've been kind of programmed to believe that that's the way you can be a good person. Um, and so when you challenge a person's reading diet they, they take it personally and think you're challenging them as a person. 
and that they're not a good person. And people will jump to these automatic conclusions like now you're calling me a racist. Now, I'm not doing any such thing. I'm just asking that we acknowledge the gaps in our reading experiences and that those gaps have been perpetuated over decades. And I'm not saying you're at fault, but I think when you know better, you do better, right? Instead of taking it personally, we're just stating some facts here. Um, I've seen places, I belong to a couple other online communities, like some Facebook education groups and such, and really heated debates about To Kill a Mockingbird. And really kind of some teachers, just a refusal to listen because they just love the book so much for them. Um, and I think it's just, I think it's hard. I think it's hard when you love something, you've invested yourself into it. And then therefore any attack on the text becomes an attack on you. And there's all these, all, all these attacks feel personal, but also professional because then you have to acknowledge to yourself that maybe professionally I could have been doing better, right? And I think that's hard for teachers to admit to themselves. I think I was the best teacher I could have been at any point in my career. Did I make mistakes along the way? Of course I did. I was, and there are things that I shudder to think about, things that I've said to kids, things I truly believed in practices. But when you know better, you do better, right? I think the reason some teachers get really defensive is because they feel like what you are saying is that they've intentionally been doing this. But it's not about intention, it's about the impact, right? And so I think always thinking about you, I don't doubt any teachers, most teachers, motives. You know, I think all teachers got into teaching because they wanted to help kids. They wanted to bring a love of learning to their kids. And I think we're all doing it in the best way that we know how. Um, and so the problem with this disruption and seeing yourself as part of a larger system of oppression perhaps is that it disrupts that sense of yourself as a good person, your sense of yourself as having the best intentions for your kids. And again, it's not about what you intended, it's about the impact. And so when you know that your impact is this and could be potentially damaging, not just for students of color, but really I teach in a place where it's majority white students, those are damaging messages to them as well. Silence around their whiteness or silence around um, being able to look at other people's points of view. And so when we talk about the crucible, or like I said earlier with fallen angels, how do we perceive the other? So in fallen angels, um, the soldiers and another book that I'm reading or that I'll be teaching in the fall, which is the things they carried, the soldiers have very, it's very clear. There's some racism in there towards the other. If that goes unexamined, and that's what I mean about applying a critical lens, then kids are just absorbing that uncritically and thinking that this is really how we treat the other. And I think we can see even just a cursory glance at our news today can show us that that is not working, right? And that we have to get kids to interrogate that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not about teachers not doing their job well. It's about always staying, I guess you could say, um, always staying kind of one step ahead and making sure that the literature is relevant and that the literature really speaks to what the kids need who are sitting here in front of me right now. And so that means maybe I've made some bad decisions as a teacher before unknowingly, but I can fix them. That's the great thing about teaching. You can always fix them. Every year is different. I mean, I fix things 
between class periods, right? So I think that's the wonderful thing is you can constantly refine and constantly craft your practice so that it can always be a little bit better. I want to jump to something because this is just something I'm grappling with myself as a teacher um, and something that I definitely have done because it feels like the only way maybe to introduce other voices that aren't in the white canon. When we have a primary text that's the white text and we're supplementing, are we recolonizing all over again? And when you said doing, and this is not an attack on the unit, and I've certainly done things like this, but like we're doing a Native American unit. We are using multiple voices from a racial Mm -hmm. background, but it's one unit, and then we continue on with our primary white text. I just wonder about the impact of that Mm -hmm. and making all the summer reading like authors of color and agreed there are lots of reasons why these things happen i just worry in our steps to becoming more diverse and those maybe they are just necessary steps and we just have to suck it up but i worry about that sort of colonizing within the canon yeah i think what you're speaking to is the position the positioning of texts against each other so why are all the texts by authors of color choice books whereas the required books are these authors i mean that sends a message to kids too and i totally agree with you and yeah i think it's a problem (laughs) i agree and i think that there are just steps there are steps that are needed um i think that we can also be honest and upfront and transparent with kids about that too like I don't think I think that part of it is you know just being saying to kids like you know we're this is one of our central texts but so is this other one Raisin in the Sun this will also be one of our central texts this year um and I think um yeah I don't it's hard I think constantly asking yourself like who are the voices that are required versus optional and maybe I think even finding ways to even disrupt that language of central text, that it's just one text among many that we are using to consider this essential question is really the thing. So that we kind of decenter that idea of like, this is the text and now it's just one of many voices. I wonder when you are making race explicit, when you're having those conversations and saying, why is it we're centering whiteness in this conversation or whatever it is that when you're bringing up whiteness, are you seeing white fragility with your white students who are saying, it's happened to me. So I'm curious if it if it's different for a teacher of color, but there's a lot of like, you're trying to make me feel guilty by making this, by talking about whiteness. Yeah, and, and I'll be very honest, I haven't spoken not yet <laughs> explicitly about like whiteness and studied whiteness with necessary with my kids what i've done and the path that i've taken is really look at having kids search and think about their identities and think about all the different things that go into that identity and their response to any text because um if you think about um any response you have to any text, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, or just an issue or a context, a conversation or a situation, it is informed by all of the experiences that you've had. And, and for many kids, um, that is also about race, right? And so it was interesting because last year I had kids kind of track and think about which identities, they, which identity lenses they were using whenever they interacted with specific texts and they kind of chose their own. It was after they had read many things. And for students of color, and we shared this as a class because I think this is just the first step to make kids aware. 
um, their racial and cultural identity lens was something that they used more often, regardless of whether or not the text was about race, was about race or, or culture. That's just, it was just something that they always kind of thought that was always in the back of their head and, and the way they read things. Whereas the white students in my class, the only time that that identity lens was um, highlighted for them or they felt aware of it was when they were reading a text that was explicitly about race or culture. So that seems like a very obvious kind of finding, <laughs> like of course, but it does, it does tell you that unless we bring these issues to the forefront with our white students, they're not conscious, they're, they won't consciously think about them, right? And so I think getting kids to think about, okay, well, I don't, I didn't have that same reaction to this author, but then to acknowledge instead of, I disagree, or, or I didn't like this piece, to acknowledge that, that response is really coming from a place of their stance as a, let's say a white, female growing up in the suburbs with this level of experience or knowledge of the world so far. So it's not about a dis disagree, dislike, but it's about my response is coming from my particular lens. And just to even own that part of it is a big step because that makes visible what would otherwise just be invisible in their response. So it's just, it's just an attempt, my attempt to center it on student response at the same time decentering it in a way like making them able to kind of pick apart and analyze a little bit more deeply what is behind their reactions and then my hope is that if they can do that in this kind of more objective way um, they might be able to react less emotionally or at least be tentative in their emotional response and then think about where is that coming from and then be able to give the same kind of generosity to other readers who disagree with them. And again, thinking about the context of your classroom, who are the students in there, kind of getting a sense early. I like to do a lot of stuff that has to do with identity and community building early in the year so that if there are issues that I need to be aware of with kids personally, like I will already be in tune to those issues before we can move into some of these bigger um, topics, yeah. So there's no one answer. <laughs>
Jack recently taught the book The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas to eighth grade students. When discussing why he chose the book, Jack discussed the need to include contemporary writers. The Hate You Give, if you haven't read it, is about a black teenage girl named Star who is constantly switching between two worlds, the underserved, mostly black neighborhood where she lives and the wealthy, mostly white prep school that she attends. Star witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend at the hands of a police officer. Given its unflinching look at systemic racism and police brutality, it has been described as a book that is very much connected to the Black Lives Matter movement. And because of that, it is considered a controversial book to teach. Yet, it has been wildly popular and was made into a film that came out in the fall of 2018. And so we did the book, um, and it, it was wildfire. Um, I mean, the kids loved it um, from the moment that we started reading it. From beginning to end, it was very authentic. It was real. Um, it relayed to them um, in their world and how they would respond um, to different circumstances and scenarios. Some familiar, some unfamiliar, um, which, you know, I mean, Cambridge Friends is a, is a it's an independent school, of course, so um, it's a predominantly white institution. To see um, the protagonist navigate two worlds uh, is pretty, uh, was pretty exciting for them um, and being able to connect in, in a world that's outside of their own. Um, is really interesting and looking at it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Were you worried at all about um, spotlighting the few kids of color who are in the yeah. class in, while reading this book? How did you yeah, handle I mean, that? There's always um, a concern about um, a child becoming the native informant mm -hmm. and, and including my, myself. Um, I could, I personally connected with I was star, um, which which is I mean, but this particular book resonated with me, not just because of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, but because of the fact that I had I had been at, a, at an independent school um, when I was young. Um, I had struggled with microaggressions. It was the first time someone actually used the N word. At Mount Saint, I went to Mount St. Joseph High School. Um, and so I know what the public-private dynamic was like. I mean, I caught um, three or four buses um, to get to Mount St. Joe. Um, I was there on a scholarship. So I came out of a community in Baltimore. And so I was familiar with um, the communities in Baltimore. And, and how, I mean, it's it, to me, it was a beautiful upbringing, but, you know, they're, they're, it's rough, right? So Star is navigating two communities, um, and, and she's also navigating various levels of identity. Um, so I was, I was nervous a bit because I didn't want to be the, I didn't want to be a native informant and start just, you know, having the kids rattle off questions about Star's life and my life. Right. Um, so... But I think in teaching literature, it's important to um, share your cultural experience, your lived experience, because if you model that for kids, um, it, it's important that that, that that trust is built at the very beginning. Um, yeah. And so in introducing the book, I did talk about myself um, and in the community because I thought that was important. So do you think your modeling and your discussion about your own story, your own identity, that made it a safer place for the few kids of color who are in your class? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, 
I think it's important for kids to be able to see themselves in the literature. Right. Um, and have their experiences validated. Um, you know, because, you know, kids who are particularly in, a, in an all-white environment, kids of color, um, it's hard for their voices or it's hard for their voices to be heard and seen or for their experiences to be, their cultural experiences, their linguistical experiences to be really acknowledged. Um, and so I tried to do that within the context of the book. Um, and then we also learn, you know, not just about what makes us different, but what makes us similar. Um, you know, Star is a, a kid navigating both worlds, but the most important thing is that she is a teenager. And that's, that's, that's difficult because I, I've been in a range of schools um, where I've had celebrities kids as an administrator and, and as a teacher. And I've had, you know, kids who come from the inner city, um, who came from communities from which I've come. Um, and the issues are still the same. You know, how they respond developmentally and emotionally are the same. You know, they're the same desires. And so I think a lot of times when we talk about race and when we talk about culture and difference, um, some most white students are taught you know privilege and to see themselves as so different from these communities mm -hmm. and they're learning that they're not that they're dealing with some of the same issues um, they just look different um, so the question is difference is deficit is right. when it becomes problematic so I think in the classroom space they were learning more about these similarities and differences yeah so it's important for white students to be able to see those points of commonality and right. also important for kids of color to see themselves reflected in a curriculum right. where right. they're often absent. I yeah. see it as an important piece of literature um, that schools should do more of. Um, and there's been questions. There was a, an article in the Baltimore Sun recently, but she came back to a, a question of why aren't we teaching um, resistant movement literature? Why are we not teaching black literature? Um, why are we moving away from that? What do we consider to be um, a, a classic, right? What does that, what does that actually mean? What makes literature good? Um, and so I think the problem is, is that we, the kids need a redefinition of what intellectualism looks like in a contemporary society and what it has looked like historically. I keep hearing resistance to the hate you give because of its linguistic use in the book. I think it, it, it matters who's speaking the language. I think it matters who's writing about um, the issue itself. Um, the topic matters. Um, so I think all of these things, when we look at language, language is in and of itself, it is, um, the way that it functions has been to support, um, white ideology and to support white thinking. You know, when we talk about language itself, um, there are allegories, there, there, there are metaphors and similes and, and really complex language in the hate you give. But because of the topic that is discussed and because of the way in which um, the, the, the context and the, the, the tension around the topic, it's easily at some time at points dismissed. 
but it's an it's a very robust narrative um you know the things that are mentioned are very psychological i mean so when i look at the the text i mean i see um you know certain i see the voice i see the black lives matter movement i see um you know uh, Marxist thinking. I mean, uh, socialism, capitalism. I see political economy. I mean, there, there's so many things that that are in there. Um, that it's 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 amazing. Um, I see Foucault and and you know uh, the hate you give. It will be. It, it is a seminal work. It will be the work of of the Black Lives Matter movement, just as. Um, you have a genre of civil rights movement literature. Um, mm. And I talked about those things in teaching it to the kids. And I never assumed um, that they couldn't handle it. And I think teachers make that mistake all the time. You, they're not going to be able to handle this language or they're not going to be able to handle this level of violence. When in fact, they're they're ready to talk about race. They're ready to talk about, you know, uh, the violence that's happening in the world and the things that they see on t- on television. They just have to need the space and the context to be able to have those conversations authentically. But the language, um, you know, there's some swear words in the book, and that often yeah. is a grounds for not teaching it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But also the complexity of ideas. I mean, I've heard that, it, you know, it wouldn't, it doesn't bring rigor to the program to teach right. this book, but... The complexity of ideas, I feel, even if you dismiss the language entirely, right. having kids grapple with, you know, yes, there's uh, some frustration and, and anger, rightfully so, about right. her friend being killed by the police, and her uncle is also a policeman. And so right. both right. can be true, and how do we hold both of those ideas? Right. Uh, I just feel like the book is full of that, and that to me is rigor. Yeah, it it is. Um, you know, and it's so funny because when you think about language that we call the canon, um, when you think about Dante um, and and in Shakespeare, and and how um, you know Angie is using language, the validation of Black English. You know, mm-hmm. that's a part of her community, and as it is used in the text, sometimes it's dismissed. But when you look at some of the other genres, there are subcultural languages there too um, that have been used. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think Dante used sort of the standard English of his, right. of his time. Right. You know, so it, it's, it, it's who's doing the validating um, that, that really matters. And this is where I think, you know, teachers, but particularly white teachers, um, need to start thinking about literacy um, in a different way and thinking about literacy as critical analysis it, it doesn't matter really the level of reading I could teach Dr. Seuss and 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 show critical analysis and help kids to think about things in a different way um, it's more about how the text is presented and how it's contextualized so that kids can understand it mm. um, how we scaffold it but how we create and ask questions um, about identity and ourselves um, and giving kids the space to do that. Um, so there are swear words in, in all types of literatures, I mean, <laughs> that are all across the... I mean, I don't hear anyone talking really about um, 
you know, swear words and other pieces of literature. I mean, think mm-hmm. about uh, what is it, Uncle? You know, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's cuss words in there. I mm-hmm. mean, the N word is used. Yeah. Um. So, I think we can't silence our students, and we can't silence the text because when we silence the text, we we ignore the histories that come along with those lived experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it took us a long time to get through the 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 text so when someone says you know that can't be a genre that you can teach well maybe you should learn how to teach right (laughs) right and without that book would you be having those conversations that sounds so yeah rich and that's right important yeah Yeah. you mentioned to kill a mockingbird and thinking about the hate you give and do you have any thoughts about those yeah. two books next to each other or in any sort of so as she evolves it's a, it's a very coming of age text she evolves into um, a different mindset at the beginning of the text versus the end of the text just as in To Kill a Mockingbird Scout um, starts the narrative with a very um, she has a very young voice um, she's very in many ways she's she has that um, resistant uh, attitude. She's sort of a tomboy, as one would say. Um, she she goes she goes against the grain. Um, she goes against the culture, and she's taught that by Atticus in many ways. She's taught to have a voice. Um, so, but her voice changes towards the end of the book. It matures, and she and this is, I mean, this is the talent of of the writer to be able to create a voice where uh, she's much more mature the same thing happens with star her voice changes at towards the end of the book she she's much more aware and self-aware of what a community is uh, and how to respond to not only a tragedy but also to embrace the community from which she comes um but there's no savior white in that book that's tough because we we have to I think white people have been taught um, that 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 they that they are that they're that they are magical in many ways, and that and that if they don't see themselves perpetuating change or being the agent of change, um, it goes against their 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 own selfhood in many mm-hmm. ways, and so that so they have to see themselves as a savior because that's what they've been taught from you know i mean it's really interesting so to kill a mockingbird while the issues are there around justice there's no perspective so we don't really hear tom robinson's voice um we don't get a chance to explore what he's thinking we don't get a chance to really explore his suffering his suffering is only coming from the voice of someone who is white um, and that's the way kids are taught to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and so it's a beloved book. You know, I remember reading it and I liked it, but you know, I, I didn't see myself in To Kill a Mockingbird. So when I think as practitioners, particularly as white teachers, we really, as uh, white teachers really need to understand what it is that they're actually teaching. So that, that's where the self-work comes in. There has to be self-examination. Otherwise, you fall into deficit thinking or thinking that you're going to help someone and you're not really going to. So what would you say to the white teacher who wants to take on this text? Um, I would say 
do the self-work. But I would also say do it, right? Um, it's an important text um, within a larger, lar lar larger uh, context in terms of what's happening in our world and our society today. But also, um, it's an important text. It's a, it's a foundational text um, for also understanding um, the Black Lives Matter movement. But I would, I would also say do the self-work first. That was Jack Hill, head of a middle school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's so interesting that we will tolerate certain language and subject matter if it's in a so-called classic text, like sexual assault or the N-word, but a swear word or a mention of sexual development is enough for us to eliminate a contemporary text as inappropriate. It's such a double standard. Yeah, and I also appreciate that both Trisha and Jack point out that in order for us to do the work of making our classrooms more equitable, white teachers have to first look at their own identity development. We're not going to be able to help our students navigate a complex racial landscape without walking through our own experiences first. Here's what one student of color, Frederick, would say to a room full of white teachers. It's like, be careful, because like, really what I'm trying to say is, it's a lot of playing. You can't go into discussion about race unprepared because that's like just like a recipe for disaster, basically. There's a lot of like preparation into doing it, and if like you miss a step, it could like completely backfire. So you have to go through like every single ingredient to the recipe for success in that conversation. And like in case something does go wrong, like how do you fix it? How do you get like back on track? That was Frederick, a 15 year old African American student from Massachusetts. Okay, so Elizabeth, if I'm a white teacher, which I am, who wants to do the work, what does that mean? It's a great question. We need to be more thoughtful. We need to know that we come to every book with our own experiences and biases that impact the way we teach. If you're a white teacher, here are some questions you might want to ask yourself. How does my whiteness impact the way I approach a book? What I notice, choose to highlight, all those things we think about. And how am I going to ask all of my students to consider how their identity might affect their reading of the text. Teaching about identity requires skill, nuance, and thoughtful preparation. Do your homework. We can no longer not mention race just because an author or character is white. We need to make whiteness equally significant in our analysis. How does the character's whiteness impact the way they move through the world? How does the author's whiteness influence their perspective? Right. I know for years I thought I could teach the crap out of any book you put in front of me. It took me years to understand all the ways I was inflicting bias on my students. The absence of books written by people of color signals that only books written by white people use important or beautiful language worthy of study. I believe this harmed all of my students. By teaching mostly white authors, I reinforced white superiority. Students of color do not see themselves in that picture, and white students continue to believe that they are at the center of the universe, or at least the literary universe. I needed to cultivate my humility and look at how my definitions of great literature have been shaped by my white experience, instead of assuming that I have all the answers. 
Yeah, I, I had a similar arrogance. I was taught to see my teaching as unbiased and neutral. I was just there to impart the knowledge provided by the books. I never thought about how my own identity might impact not only how I taught a text, but also the texts I chose to teach. In our next episode, we will continue this conversation with a white teacher in Nashville, Tennessee, who put the power of selecting what text to read into the hands of his students with amazing results. Until next time, this is Teaching While White. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to like us on iTunes, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and spread the word. A lot of our listeners find us through word of mouth. And check out our website where you can find amazing blog posts by teachers, professors, and students from around the country, as well as resources at www.teachingwhilewhite.org. Our story editor is the amazing Kate Ellis, and our sound editor is Lyra Smith. Our theme song was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White. Teaching While White.